Good to be back. Um, uh, I was sick of traveling, so it's really good to be back. Um, if you're new here today, uh, glad, you, uh, glad that you're here. If you need a Bible, there's going to be some guys in the back that are going to walk up here in just a little bit. We'd be more than happy to let you have a Bible, uh, so you can go ahead and take it. But if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians 1, which is where we're going to be today, um, if you've got your Bibles. But over the last few weeks, we've been trying to just work through the first uh, chapter or so of, of 1 Corinthians. And one of the quotes that I used early on from a guy named C.K. Barrett, let me just read this for you because you can kind of get a rhythm of where we're going to go today. But he wrote this, writing 2 Corinthians must have come near to breaking Paul. And a church that's prepared to read it with him and understand it might find itself broken too. Let me just say this in, in, a, in a hopeful way. You'll kind of believe me not only now, but even in the middle of what we're going to talk about today, but even at the end of it. Brokenness is a phenomenal thing. I'm not talking about being a masochist in which we enjoy pain, but I really do think that our aversion to pain and our fear of pain and even our fear of brokenness has caused us to not fully be the people that God intends us to be. And so like in one instance, you have Paul early on in 2 Corinthians 1, and I love this passage. He was a guy that needed to have some things worked out in his life. We find out that he says, look, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Look at this. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, and we despaired of life itself. In other words, life stunk. He said, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now watch this. But that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, I know I don't look like it, but I understand the idea of working out. The whole premise of it is, is to tear apart muscle so that muscle can be what? Build back up. I really do believe that at the end of the day, we don't believe the pain that God allows to come into our lives is to break us down, yes, but is to build us back up and to make us stronger. And what Paul is going to keep hammering on all throughout this letter, and this is a rhythm you're going to see, and if you don't like this rhythm, it's going to be a very long teaching through the book of 2 Corinthians, is Paul was never afraid of pain because he believed that it's one of the more powerful ways that God uses us to shape us into the people he wants us to be. Now, the interesting thing about pain is, right, it's one thing. In this particular instance, he was probably, maybe it was circumstantial. Maybe he was dealing with just people that didn't even like him. But, but here's the thing we're going to get into today, which is so important. The pain that he's going to talk about today is not that type of pain. It is the pain that we encounter from those that we love. And I would say this, that is the deepest, most hurtful kind of pain. <laughs> Chris, they heard you. At least she did. Good job, dude. Well, no, actually, not a very good job. I only had one. Gosh, you're going to have to improve preaching. I'm ki- I, I thought he did a great job. Amen? Good. He feels better already. But, but let me just say this from the outset. I know in a room this size, I'm talking to a lot of people that have been hurt deeply by people that lo- you loved and you thought loved you. And so just understand, when I walk through this, I'm not just trying to walk through it cold or anything like that, but I want you to know that even the most brutal pain that we experience 
While others might mean it for evil, God means it for what? For good. So that's where we're going to kind of start today. Now, in order to kind of understand where Paul's going, though, you kind of have to understand what's going on at the time. Now, for Paul, he is just a little while ago, and then in the context of how things flow, he, he left Corinth, and in leaving Corinth, he looked at all of them and promised, look, I'm going to come back again. In fact, his intent was that he would spend a whole winter with them. As he gets out, though, he sent Timothy back to kind of see how the church was doing. Now, just imagine, in Paul's head, he's thinking, oh, I'm sending Timothy. Everything's about ready to be great. Sends Timothy. Timothy comes back and says, yeah, bro. Well, he probably didn't say bro. Yes, Paul. Well, maybe he did say brother. I don't know. But yes, Paul, things are a mess. Now, in Paul's thinking, we know this. He thought, okay, well, I'll just I'll go cruise back to Corinth. And in cruising back to Corinth, I'll set things straight. So he makes an unannounced visit. He makes this unannounced visit. He goes in there, and chapter 13, we learn. He really does think this is going to be a fast turnover. But when he gets inside of there, there's a guy that he must have known and loved that he kind of left in some ways in charge. And when he shows up, this guy confronts him to his face and begins to get after him. He begins to degrade him. In fact, not only just publicly, but probably verbally. And he just sat at that moment, taking that in, and we find out in chapter 12 that the, word, the church watched passively as he was just torn apart by this guy. Now, if you've ever been somebody on the other end of it, while others watched on, it can be extremely painful. Probably what this guy was going after had to do with, with character issues that he perceived within Paul. A group came in after Paul had left that we're going to learn later in chapters 10 through 12 were the super apostles. How would you like that name? And after he left, they must have got the attention of this particular guy because he began to go after Paul. He began to confront him in regards to his character. He began to go after him because he was dishonest. He thought he was double-minded. He felt he lacked courage. In other words, he was going after Paul and he was shaming him in front of everybody. Not only that, but he probably insinuated that Paul, we're going to talk about this offering to Jerusalem, Paul was probably taking the offering that they thought was for the poor in Jerusalem because they couldn't imagine how Paul was making ends meet without getting money from people, and they thought for sure he was taking that money and using it for himself. Then we even see in this, they probably went after Paul personally, and I've said this before, but church history tells us that Paul wasn't the most pretty man on the planet. Paul was probably short, and this sounds bad. Short people are great, too. He was short. He was hunchbacked. He probably had a crooked nose. He was bald. He had the crown baldness, pattern crown baldness. So if you got it, you look like Paul. He couldn't speak very well. He had a speech problem. And this guy probably attacked him there, too. When Paul showed up, it was a mess and the very people he thought loved him were suddenly rejecting him. Ever notice that rejection is probably one of the most painful things that we can ever go through? And Paul was broken. In fact, from the way we understand it, he didn't stick up for himself. He saw the mess that was going on there and realized in order to keep unity amongst the group, the best thing he could do was to leave town. He promised he would be back, but the best thing that he could do for that group of people was to leave town. While he was away, he wrote them what's called the severe, the painful letter. 
In it, he began to just outline kind of what was going on. And we don't know fully what was going on, but we know that there was, he says it was tearful. So that means this letter was tear-stained. It was, it was heartfelt. It was heartbreaking. And when he wrote this letter, the cool part that happened, though, is after sending it to them, a majority of the Corinthians must have repented. So in other words, well, great, great news. This group of people, it does, and the way Paul talks about it in this particular section is that they were grieved, they were broken deep within who they were, and so Paul is affirming this reality. And as he's talking through it, though, he's acknowledging that while one group of people might have repented, there was still this other group of people that were stubborn, that were disparaging, that were under the sway of the super apostles who believed that Paul was still deceptive, still double-speaking, still lacking in character, and all of Paul's confusing changes that Chris talked about about last week and the way that they were trying to figure out what it was is Paul like is he somehow this guy of chaos because God's not a God of chaos is he lying to us because God is not a liar Paul is trying to help these people understand all of it and in the middle of everything the guy that actually he called he sent to confront he actually now begins to ask for forgiveness and so Paul's like great but then Paul hears back there's still this group that doesn't trust him there's this group that does trust him and then there's a group in the middle that are just confused by all measures. If you can just think about it, it was a mess. And I don't know if you've ever been in charge when there's a mess, but it ain't fun. And I know you're not supposed to say ain't, but I just did. Paul's heartbroken. He feels rejected. He's kind of happy, kind of sad. But the one thing we find out about them, and we're going to see in our text today, now just, just hear my heart on this because I want you to catch Paul's heart. Sometimes we view Paul like he was like a robot. This dude that just kind of wrote theological letters that make us you know, understand who God is in a greater way. But you're about ready to see a side of Paul, this man that was broken and heartachy, and we're going to learn that he loves this church. Now watch this. He says to them, verse 23, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind <clears throat> not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. I love verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. I don't know about you, man, but people reject me. I don't write letters about abundant love. I write letters about abundantly upset. But Paul's writing to this group of people, and I think this is important. Not only did he see his pain, but he saw their pain. Now look at verse 1 if you have a chance. See that word? Pain. Verse 2, pain. Verse 3, pain. Verse 4, pain. Anytime you put a group of people together, even those that know Jesus, and you ask them to hang out and be a part of following Jesus, let me just tell you this. Any church that is worth its salt, any relationship that is worth its salt that does not have pain is a fake relationship. 
Man, in my early years of being, is my wife in here? In my early years of marriage, man, I remember when we were first married, and we just, we thought we were the bee's knees, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're so, like, we're so good at marriage, like, we never fight. You want to know why we never fought? Because we never called each other out on our sin. Man, you don't understand, she had a lot. (laughs) See, that's why I asked if she was here. When you leave here, tell her the opposite, if you could. But he kept using these words, and I think this is like a principle that kind of looms large over the book of 2 Corinthians. Relationships at the end of the day are messy. In fact, if your relationships aren't messy, there's a potential that you're not doing your job. Parenting, messy. Marriage, messy. Government, (laughs) my point exactly, because if we're going to deal with sin and rebellion against God in our lives, it is going to be painful and messy. And Paul is acknowledging not only his own pain, but their pain. See, when God created relationships, what's so cool about relationships is they were intended to be other-centered, God-centered. But after the fall, everything got twisted and mangled, and it moved from other-centered to self-centeredness. Now, when you take a group of people, whether we're talking marriage or a family or church, and you begin to pull them together at the crossroads of where people meet, where all that self-centeredness begins to come to the surface, where we build our relationships about my own wants and my own needs and what I have in store for what life is supposed to be, it is going to be carnage. But I think that's why God created relationships. I think he created relationships and had us marry the people we did, gave us the kids that he did, put us in the churches that he did, because late relationships, when done correctly, when God surrounds us with those kinds of people, it becomes this almost like glorious, paradoxical mix of people in which through that process, we become the people God wants us to be. I mean, think about it. For me, I, God knew that the perfect husband that my wife needed, sounds so weird saying it because I'm not perfect, but the perfect wife that I needed was exactly the one that he gave me, warts and all. The kiddos that God gave me, right? Like sometimes I do, I look down at my children, I'm like, man, you are your mother's kid. You know, I'm just, ah. God, why did you give me this one? Oh, and then they go into cahoots, right? One is one week, one's the next week, one's the next week, and you're like, Gone with all of you. Like, geez. But what are those kids? Those kids, I think at the end of the day, I'm there to grace them with my presence as a man of the cloth. <laughs> but those kiddos become an anvil that God uses to shape me into the image of his son. Relationships are just messy. And while there may be evil in those relationships and the way they happen, what what others were meant for evil is actually, though, meant for what? Good. Paul just believed this. Paul believed it not only in circumstances, he didn't just believe it in the way that others that were evil treated him, but in this context, what we find is he believed that even from those that love us, and I say this again so cautiously because I know some of you have been hurt so greatly by some people that you thought loved you, 
But if you've ever been hurt by what others have said to or about you, if you've ever felt betrayed, if you've ever felt misunderstood, if you've ever felt used or taken advantage of, if you've ever felt let down, if you've ever wondered if someone you loved dearly loved you in return, this is normal life. Not only out there, but here in the church. It is just messy. And I've often found that churches that aren't messy are legalistic because we create and we pretend to be something that we're not and there's no confrontation, there's no honesty with one another. But I think when a church decides graciously to be honest with one another, it gets messy. It's normal. So if you've ever felt that way, you now know what Paul feels like. He's just broken. You can even see this in, in, in verse 23. He says, but I call God as to witness against me. The idea there is probably better in the net. Now I appeal to God as my witness. It's almost like he has nowhere else to turn. He's like, oh, people, do you not understand my love for you? And he just appeals to God as this one that is his witness. He, he pled for them to grasp his compassion. He pled for them to understand his love. And we've been there before. And especially those of you that have had teenagers or older children, you plead with them to understand how much you love them and how much these friends that are taking them down the wrong path don't and yet it's so weird no matter how hard you try they don't hear you and this is where Paul is at he's broken he'd witnessed their eyes being open to the amazingness of Jesus he watched as they walked away from the rebellion against God and, and embraced Jesus for who he was he had instructed them in the faith he had prayed tirelessly over them even when they had rejected him and at the end of the day, he gave them his own life. But here's the key. They rejected him. And he's broken. But I love what Paul does here. You ever noticed what a mistake it is to try to win an argument with your spouse or your friend or your children? I won't tell you which kid it was, but the other day I got into an argument with my child and I was going to win the argument. And then all of a sudden, about midway through, I'm like, I sound like my child. Paul wasn't trying to win an argument. He was trying to win them. Paul believed so much in reconciliation. He believed so much in redemption. He wasn't after winning an argument. He wasn't trying to help them understand how much I'm hurting. I hurt more than you do. You know, He wasn't trying to get into that game. You can just see in Paul's heart as he's pleading in front of God that he just wanted them. He loved them and he adored them. He was after them. I think that's why even in probably in the back of his head, he knew that this group of people called the church is something special. It's a group where one member, when it suffers, they all suffer together. If one member is honored, they are all honored together. He saw this beautiful interconnectedness that was at stake, and he was looking at them, and I love this when we talk about conflict. He didn't see his own pain. He was looking at this group of people and knew that they were agonizing too, that they had broken relationships, that they were hurt, that they were trying to sort through it, and Paul has empathy for them. I think that's why in verse 2, he just says, look, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad at the end of this? He knew if he would have come and they would have rebelled against him, he knew, verse 1, it would have been a mess. He's trying to help them understand that's why it didn't come to you. 
He's going to come at some point, chapter 13, and let them know, if I need to bring judgment, I will. In fact, the way he talks about it is, is I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. So he's not afraid to be a dad that uses the rod of correction. He wanted obedience to Christ, and if at the end of the day he needed to bring discipline, he would do it because he loves them. Paul had authority. He loved this church. He wasn't going to let anything at all get in the way of God's love for this blood-bought people. But he also had authority to remove the pain he wanted them. Paul is just pleading. I want you. His point being, sure, it might appear like it's vacillation, but he's at the core of it, I think, following through in like a 2 Peter 3, 9 principle where it's like, look, in the same way that God is not slow to patience, he's wanting to give this space for repentance. The reason that I left town is I wanted to give space. I wanted you to have the time to seek repentance and forgiveness for us to restore relationship because if I came back, it was going to alienate potentially me from you and maybe even them from Christ. This guy, Scott Halfman, a guy that I've loved reading his commentary, just as God, he says, extended one more opportunity for repentance and restoration to the world by separating the two comings of Christ, Paul, too, wanted to extend the same opportunity to the Corinthians. He just said, I want to give you space. I love you. I also love the fact that he didn't play politics with them. Look, look, look up there into verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith. Paul refused to play politics. He refused to play the idea of one being greater than another. He wasn't going to unnecessarily throw his weight around as an apostle. He wasn't some belligerent dad that comes in and trying to figure out how to whip the family into shape so he's going to throw his weight around. He had no desire to cajole. He had no desire to dominate them. He believed in his heart. The only one that is Lord over our faith is Jesus. So he wasn't going to tell them what to think or what to do. Probably everybody in this room in different ways, right? We've played the Holy Spirit in people's lives, and we're so proud of the fact that we think the words we're going to say are somehow going to spiritually change people. And the thing is, is we can't. The only one that can change people is God. Paul didn't use strong-arming. He didn't use anything. He used persuasion. He used love. And that's he's saying why I wrote the painful letter. I was creating space and writing into it. He saw these leaders that is stuck in. He saw that they were trying in some ways to finagle and move Paul out. But he was not going to in any way throw his weight around. Why? Because he loved them. I wish in seminary the thing they would have told us that is that the heart of a true shepherd over his people is not just the capacity to break verbs and nouns and prepositions and all these other things to dissect theology and to know all the different methodologies of how you're going to do church planning. I wish they would have just looked at us on an ongoing basis. You want to know what a true shepherd is? Sure, it is all those wonderful truths. They are. But at the core of it, do you love your people? Oh, gosh. I don't know why I've hated being gone from here. I hate speaking at the things I speak at. I don't know those people. What I say, I actually have to live with here. It's because I love this church. Man, I look out over this room. What a precious group of blood-bought people. And Paul loved them. He was crying out to them. They were precious saints that he'd been sent to, that he saw. And probably the hardest part for him 
was not all the physical sufferings. We tend to focus on all the physical sufferings, but in 1128, he says, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He said, you want to know what keeps me up at night? It's not the beatings. You want to know what keeps me up at night? It's not the fact that I don't know where I'm going to sleep. What keeps me up at night are these precious blood-bought people that God has put me in their lives. Are you catching where Paul's going here? He loved the people. He was trying to rescue them from this deep hurt and confusion. Paul didn't just teach in a classroom. He wasn't just somehow pulling them in, but he was actually teaching them out of the pain of life. One of the greatest teachers in life is not only the pain of life, but the capacity to teach out of the pain of life. He was a dad that was patiently walking with his people and and caring for them. That's why I think he wrote in verse 4, For I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. His heart was overflowing for them. You can just see he didn't care what abuse he was going to take from them because he loved them like Jesus loved people. He was modeling for them this cruciform way of life that we keep talking about. But what's so fascinating here, and if you've got your Bible, I want you to put a star next to this, kind of in this little section. Paul never weaponized his pain. What do I mean by that? So often when we get hurt, when we walk through pain, there's this way that Satan lies to us that we're going to get here in just a little while, in which it moves from pain and heartache and disappointment to frustration and eventually to bitterness. And once that thing arrives at bitterness, we learn how to weaponize our pain. The person that has hurt us, we want them to know how much we've been hurt. The person that has hurt us, we want to make them pay for what they've done. And what's so sad is, is that pain eventually that gets weaponized, it not only now gets used against the one that hurts us, but then it gets used to hurt all kinds of people. Paul refused to go down that path. So what did he do? I think what's so cool in this particular passage is found in verse 24. I love this. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, look at this, but we work with you for your joy. I love that. See, there's always two ways in which people can go. Whenever we walk through pain, and I see this in my own life, and I see this in other people's lives, We either go down the one path, which leads to bitterness, which means we start to weaponize our pain and use our pain to eventually hurt other people. But for Paul, one of the things that was so cool about him and the way that God had walked him through all these difficulties and heartaches is all the pain that had come into his life, instead of it now being weaponized to use against other people, his pain was something that God mined deep within him and refined as in this amazing work of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life. And what came from that mining and that refining was joy. I love that. There's only two paths. Now, in this particular instance, Paul is trying to show them the one path. But what we find is, is that these people are starting to go down the wrong path. 
But he wants them to get that if you really want to know what to do with pain, if you really want to know how to walk through pain and deal through pain, do not go the path of heartache that moves itself into bitterness because then you will only become the person that you never wanted to become. And Satan wants you exactly to be there. Instead, entrust yourself to God. And in entrusting yourself to God, I promise you, he will mine that pain and refine that pain and he will turn it into joy. How? That's a nice little statement, Todd. Mind your pain and refine your pain. You know what I mean? It's just like, way to go. That's not real, is it? I love what he says here. For you stand firm in your faith. That word for is actually a cause. It's not just somehow that joy shows up. Maturity and growth that we bring into us, joy is the byproduct. Do you want to know what causes that joy to happen? What is it? What is the difference between the two paths? He says one path moves away from standing firm in your faith, and the other path moves towards standing firm in your faith. And the path that moves towards standing firm in your faith is the exact path that becomes the spring that begins to exude joy out of your life because the standing firm in your faith path is the place that God does mine and refine that pain into joy. It's a cause. In other words, you don't run from people. You don't run into your own head where you sit there and massage your own thinking over your pain and your hurt and your heartache till it moves into bitterness, but you press yourself back into the relationships you have, and in pressing yourself back into those relationships you have, you don't trust yourself. You trust what God says about the pain that's going on at that time. He was saying, this is how I have reframed pain. This is how I look at pain. I don't trust myself. I don't trust other people in some instances. What I trust is God's unfailing word to begin to reshape and help me to think through what to do. So what is it? How in this particular case is he asking them to stand firm in their faith? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 5. He says, now if anyone has caused, I love that, caused, pain, he is constant not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Now, this is what I mean. Paul is sitting there. He's redefining now the pain. He's, he's helping them to understand how he's looking at it. If you notice in there, he doesn't go after the guy, does he? He doesn't say the name now. I'll be honest with you, man. If I knew who it was, I'd be like, yes, you're, sir, it was Billy Kappen. That is the problem. He is the one that's caused all of this. He doesn't say that. He says, look, we know. I don't have to say his name. But I love what he says in there. Is that standing firm in your faith, he says, almost like it was no big deal. This idea, he caused it not to me. Why? Was Paul being disingenuous? Was he like pretending like he doesn't hurt? I think the key here in understanding what Paul was doing was, is again, he was looking at pain correctly. He was already moving past that moment in which pain was now moving towards something that was bitter. He was already, as God was doing a work on him, starting to see that that pain, while it might have been meant for evil, God intended for good. In fact, it says it is in there. It's, look, it's not that it caused me. You don't want to know who it really hurt. It really hurt all of you. That's where this pain landed. See, the problem with pain that moves into bitterness that then becomes a person that weaponizes their pain that they never see 
They never see that they're not just hurting the person that pained them, but they are a person that begins to hurt all kinds of others. It just spreads like wildfire. Paul says, look, at the end of the day, I've worked through this, but you all haven't. And how do we know that they haven't worked through it? Glad you asked. Look at verse 6. He says in there, I'm going to keep going. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather return to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, on one level, you're probably thinking, that's great. What they did is they reached out to him. They did the right thing, man. They came. They confronted the guy. More than likely, if you follow the text, kind of out of 1 Corinthians 5, they probably walked him through church discipline, which, by the way, is a wonderful reality. And as they walked him through church discipline and took him out of fellowship and placed him out amongst the world, something happened in this guy where he saw the monstrous reality of the doctrine of the church. He saw how wonderful it is. He saw the blessings. He saw the benefits of being in the local church. And in doing so, in seeing it, he said, please, let me back in. I've seen my wrong. And we would say, that's great. That's awesome. What's the problem? They didn't want him back in. I've been to so many churches, and every church I've ever been a part of practices church discipline. Did you know that the church discipline part isn't the hardest? You know what the hardest is? Receiving them back. I think in the back of their head, they say, you know, we totally did the right thing, didn't we? They probably were fist pounding. We did the right thing. We turned that man over to Satan. We stuck up for Paul's honor. Yeah, that's what we did. We stuck up for Paul's honor. We stood proud. Look at us. And you know what? We're going to make sure at the end of the day, he understands what's going on here. Paul says that's not the point of church discipline. The point of church discipline is to bring them to a point of repentance where they see Jesus is incredible for who he is. And once he gets there, receive him back. See, they were starting to move, and here's what's always crazy in it. As they started to move from anger and frustration into bitterness, they had weaponized this, and they were going to keep this man out of the church, and probably even what's happening to him is the pain and the heartache and the bitterness is growing. In fact, the word that he uses in here comes from Numbers when he he talks about this idea of being swallowed up or one who's going under. The idea is this man even could have been moving towards committing suicide. Paul's point is, no, reach out to him, care for him, and bring him back in. My gosh, this is the love that I'm asking you to do. Don't move towards bitterness that weaponizes against another person. No, allow God to come in and work you over in regards to forgiveness because out of this forgiveness, I promise you, God is going to do a powerful work, which brings us to the point of forgiveness. What in the world is forgiveness? Well, in verse 8, you see this. He says this idea of, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, verse 9, he had been testing them to see if they would actually do it. And then in verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I've forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. He says, look, I was the guy that got wronged. 
I'm the one who's worked through it and reframed it to see it in its new light. Do not withhold forgiveness from this man. If I can forgive him, you can too. We must work towards forgiveness. This is what it means to stand firm in your faith. Churches that don't forgive one another, I don't believe, are churches at all. Because if we don't forgive one another, we don't understand how amazing it is that we've been forgiven by God. Oh, what still is forgiveness? I think on some levels we think of forgiveness as just the idea of forgive and forget, right? That's generally the way that we've heard it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a guy that was, that was murdered inside of a, a concentration camp, gave probably one of the better definitions of forgiveness I've ever seen. Now watch this. As Christ bears our burdens, so ought we to bear the burdens of our fellow man. Okay, yeah, cool. We're supposed to bear one another's burdens. The law of Christ, which is our duty to fulfill, is the bearing of the cross. Oh, that's right. Luke 14, take up my, your, take up my cross and, and, and follow, take up your cross and follow me. My brother's burden, which I must bear, is not only his outward lot, but quite literally his sin. Now watch this. And the only way to bear that sin is by forgiving it in the power of the cross of Christ in which you now share. In other words, the only way we're ever able to forgive is that we understand forgiveness on such a radical level. Thus, the call to follow Christ always means a call to work to the work of forgiving men their sins. Forgiveness is the Christ-like suffering, which it is the Christian's duty to bear. Now, generally in Jeremiah 31, 34, we'll kind of see that, is that, oh, shoot, don't go there. Jeremiah 31, 34 talks about this idea that God forgives and he remembers what? Our sins no more. And we say, see, Todd, you're right, you're wrong. See, forgive and forget. Let me ask you a question. Do you honestly think an omniscient God can forget as if he has some superpower to amnesia, where it's like, oh, I forgive you, I didn't even remember it anymore. That's not what he's talking about here. The idea of to remember sin no more is that God takes that sin and that is forgiven, the person that repents and comes to know Jesus, and then coming to know Jesus, he is forgiven, and that sin is forever remembered, no longer as sin, but as a trophy of God's grace. That sin now becomes a marker of the greatness of Jesus. That's how he remembers it. Now, in an interesting way, what he's trying to say is, is that when somebody has wronged us and they come to us forgiveness, we actually are doing a very similar thing. We are taking their sin, now not the sin of the whole world, only Jesus can do that, and we're putting it now upon ourselves, and when we say, I forgive you, what we're saying is, you no longer have to bear the burden of that sin, I will bear it for you. Everybody see that? We're modeling the cross. There was a couple that came into my office probably about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. And I'll never forget this because we were working through this issue together. The heartache of what had happened is, is that the man had had affairs with other women and they came into my office and everything was broken. It was falling apart. As we're dealing with things, and I've told you this before, usually the first 15 minutes of any session that I have with a couple that's in trouble is my Jerry Springer moment. It is just chaos, right? Things are flying all around. Well, maybe not, but it seems like that. 
Finally, the lady looks at me and she goes, I can't forgive him. And I go, why? Well, I know I'm supposed to forgive like Jesus has forgiven me. But every time I see that man's face, all I see is an unfaithful husband. I can't forgive him. I go, well, what do you mean? She goes, if the idea is, is that I forgive and forget, I don't know if I will ever forget what this man has done to me. I began to walk him through this process. I looked at her and I said, it's, the issue is not forgiven and forget. The issue is, is to forgive and to leave forgiveness over that as a championship of God's grace. I handed her a piece of paper and somewhere in there, one of the pastors, she said, use this as an illustration. She thought it was me. It wasn't me. But she began to write down on the piece of paper um, what the sin was. And, and then she gets done writing front and back on a four, uh, three by five. And she goes, can I have another one? I go, no, I think that'll be good. I go, hand it to your husband. I said, now, if you really want to ask forgiveness, what I want you to do is I want you to read that in the first person, and I want you to say, please forgive me at the end of that. He read it, and tears were just streaming down his face. He knew all those wrong things he had done against her. As she sat there, man, I could just see her her ears were red. She was angry as he was saying it. And when he got all done, his head was just hung in shame. I said, to ask forgiveness now is to now actually hand her that paper and say, I'm asking you to bear the burden of this for me. You know those moments when like there's so much tension you can cut it with a knife? I'm sitting there in my chair, and I'm like, God, please, 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 please. I mean, I just, oh, please do a work in her. Please do a work in her. And she stared at it, and I don't even know how long. It felt like it was about five hours. But then slowly I watched her arm come up, and I'm like, and then she took it. And I said, I didn't expect these next words out of her, out of her mouth. She says, come with me to the bathroom. I go, excuse me. I go, she goes, just, just come with me. And we walked around, and if you know where my office is, we walk around, the women's restroom is right there, and we walk through the door, and I don't have a clue what she's going to do. Like she said, she eventually later told me that a pastor had done this illustration, so you thought it was me, but it wasn't me. And she then went in, and the three of us are standing in the bathroom, I have no clue what she's going to do, and all of a sudden she goes, and she just stands over the toilet. And she kept looking at that paper. Next thing I know, she started to tear the paper. And she grabbed it and she looked at all the pieces. And kind of, if you've ever seen it, where just one by one, they just kind of fall out and they landed in the toilet. And then slowly she reached out and she flushed it. I'm still wondering what in the world's going on here, right? And all of a sudden, she leaned over to her husband and she grabbed him by the face. She said, I forgive you. Your burden is now my burden. And as crazy as it is for me to reach my arm into that toilet and try to pull those pages back, it's as crazy it should be if I ever use your sin against you. I forgive you. <laughs> One of my best experiences ever in a bathroom. Right? I mean, it's just like, no way. This is what Paul's talking about. 
He's trying to help them understand forgiveness in the way. Forgiveness isn't cheap. Forgiveness requires somebody to bear it. Now, the beauty is, and I don't want you to miss this, at the end of the day, we still don't bear that person's burden like we think we do. And I'm going to explain it here in just a second. But for Paul, he really did believe this. And we know, because C.S. Lewis, I think, hit this correctly. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. It's brutal. It's difficult. But we also know that the lack of forgiveness is that at the end of the day, we are to ask God to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But verse 14, if you, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. One of the scariest verses in the Bible. If you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wow. So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now why should we do that? What happens if we don't? Verse 11, if you don't, you will be outwitted by Satan because Paul understood his designs. In a room this size, I promise you, Satan does not want any of you in this room to deal with forgiveness. He doesn't. He doesn't want you to see forgiveness for how powerful it is. He doesn't want you to see forgiveness of what it means to bear another's burden. He does not want you to see this, but I'm telling you, Paul does not want you to be outwitted by Satan. And so if you're somebody here that needs to ask forgiveness or in any way confront another because you need to work through forgiveness, Satan doesn't want you to do that, but don't be outwitted by Satan. Because the issue isn't about winning an argument, but you understand that when you and I, if we have something between us, work through forgiveness, somebody is going to lose, but it's not going to be you, it's not going to be me, it's not going to be God himself. The only one that loses in the midst of forgiveness is Satan. That's it. And my huge concern today is that some of you are going to walk out of here and you're going to look at this forgiveness thing and say, forget it. And you're going to move more and more into bitterness and more and more into weaponizing your pain only to pass on that pain to more and more people. Remember I said we are going to talk about that burden thing? In her book, The Hiding Place, another lady like Bonhoeffer that was alive during the Nazis She wrote about her encounter that she had with an SS officer. Now watch this. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face, and Betsy actually ended up dying in that concentration camp. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein. He said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to people at Blumenthal, the need to forgive kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. And while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. 
And all God's people said, that was really weak, Chris. You need to do better. All God's people said, yeah. See, here's what's crazy about it. In Matthew 11, Jesus talked about taking his yoke upon you. To take another's burden upon yourself is to take that yoke upon you. And you need to understand, you choose to forgive people like the Bible talks about forgiving people. The promise of Jesus that my yoke will be light will be true. You will be, like Corey Tim Boom was, one who experiences the joy of forgiveness. If you don't know Jesus here today, I can't tell you enough. You need to experience the, the forgiveness of Jesus. If you do know Jesus, I believe there's nothing more beautiful in a church than when a church operates from the grace of forgiveness. Don't leave today. If you need prayer, we would love to pray with you if you're struggling through the issue of forgiveness. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you all to stand up, if you could, real quickly. Here in just a second, we're about ready to do a song. And there are some of you already in your starting blocks to go out the door. Just so you know, on the other side of that door are rabid dogs. <laughs> and they're going to sick whoever goes out that door. Now, here's why I don't want you to leave. We've been walking with a couple guys through eldership, and we're about ready to present them to you at the end of this. So I really want you to stay here for this. But as we move into this song, let me just say this. In the name of the Father, loves us. Gosh. He loves us so deeply that even from the foundations of the world, he couldn't wait for the moment his son would die to make us his very own kids. In the name of the son who came willfully and died, taking that sin on him so that we might now be the children of God. In the name of the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to forgive even the most treacherous sins against us. May God bless you this week in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. all right, God bless you.